Our reading is from Luke 6, 27 through 36. And that can be found in your Pewback Bible on page 862. That's Luke 6, 27 through 36. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even the sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. Given that two of my elders are attorneys, what I'm about to say is not meant to be offensive. Most of what an attorney's job, at least in the courtroom, his intent or his purpose is to lead or to ask leading type of questions or what we might call manipulative questions in which he is trying to get the jury to think about things in a certain way. And as you think about that type of approach, it seems that some 2,000 years ago, there was a lawyer of such that came to Jesus in Luke chapter number 10. And though he was a lawyer, perhaps slightly different than what we might think of in regards to a lawyer, one who was concerned about the law, not necessarily with ones who were with maybe criminally prosecuting those that had broken the law, but rather being a studier of the law, his approach to approaching Jesus seems to be somewhat similar to that pro the approach of a modern day attorney in which he was asking some sort of manipulative questions. In Luke chapter number 10, this lawyer comes to Jesus and he asks Jesus, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds to him, well, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so the lawyer responds, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And the second is likened to it, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But then another manipulative type of question comes to Jesus. And he asks him, teacher, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And as you think about that question, who is my neighbor? You might start to realize that, as we said, this manipulative type of questioning 
is trying to avoid asking this question. Well, teacher, who is it that I don't have to love? By asking who it is that he has to love, by implication, he's also asking who is it that I don't have to love? What's the limit? What are the expectations for me? Are there individuals that I don't have to love? This lawyer seems to be asking. And so Jesus goes on to tell the parable of the Good Samaritan, one that many are familiar with, even if you don't study your scriptures very much, in which a, a Jew is passing on his way and he is uh, attacked and is left for dead. And then a priest, one of the Jews, came, comes along the road and he looks at this man who is left for dead and he passes by. And some, uh, as well, a Levite comes along and he passes by on the other side. But then a Samaritan one who would have been perceived by this lawyer to be an enemy, one who would have been looked down upon by this lawyer, comes and he aids, he assists this man who is in need. At the end of the, at the, end of the parable, Jesus asks him the question, who is this neighbor? Who, which, which one of them is the neighbor? And the lawyer responds with the one who had shown mercy on him. What Jesus was trying to help him to see was that even what, the one that he perceived to be an enemy in this case was one who was actually doing good, but he also needed to recognize that he needed to love even his enemies, even, his, even those that were Samaritans. Perhaps one of the most striking things, most striking teachings that Jesus ever communicated was this, that we are to love our enemies. We're to love our enemies. We just read from Luke chapter number six. Our text this morning is gonna come from Matthew chapter number five. I'd encourage you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter number five, and we're going to consider this particular text. Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 48. We're gonna do three things in our lesson this morning. First, we're going to spend some time setting the scene seeing this particular text in context of the, of the sermon, as well as the day in which it was given. Then we're going to spend some time studying the solution. How is it that we are to interact with our enemies, those with whom we don't necessarily get along, those with whom we're at odds with? And then finally, we're going to spend some time seeing the Father. How does our Father treat his enemies? And so let's jump right in. First and foremost, let's set the scene. Jesus taught this sermon in the Sermon on the Mount. From our scripture reading, we read just a moment ago from Luke chapter 6, verses 27 through 36. As we said, our text this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. If you'll allow me just a moment to spend some time talking about some academic type of things, it'll be necessary for just a moment as we, as we lay out our points for this lesson. Matthew chapter 5 is most commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. But you also have Luke chapter six, in which sometimes it's called the Sermon on the Plain. Some believe that this Sermon on the Plain is the exact same Sermon on the Mount, though it's recorded for us a little bit differently by Luke uh, than it was by Matthew. Some believe it may have even been the exact same occasion, the same time frame. Some believe that this is called the Sermon on the Plain, the flat place, that maybe Jesus was on top of the Mount, Matthew chapter five, six, and seven but that he was on a flat place on top of the mountain. So it seems that maybe it is the case that this is the same sermon, if not at the same time, very much the same message. But I bring all that up to say that as here in a moment we get to our main points from studying the solution, you're gonna find if you're reading from the pew back in the, uh, the Bible in the pew back in front of you, some translations don't include a couple of lines in Matthew chapter five, particularly in verse number 44. 
Depends on what the translation uh, is drawing from as its original text, which, which manuscripts it was translating from. But the point remains that as you compare it to Luke chapter six, it seems that Jesus no less said the same words, particularly to bless those who curse you and to do good to those who hate you. And so we're gonna draw and kind of mix the two together from Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 48, as well as what is, what is said in Luke chapter six. So just some academic background information for us so you'll understand in case you're reading from perhaps the ESV or maybe the NIV, it's not gonna include some of those letters or some of those words, those phrases, but you will find them in Luke chapter six. Now, setting the scene of the sermon of loving your enemies in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount was being spoken to some individuals and they, what, what Jesus was communicating to them was that their righteousness, Matthew chapter five, verse number 20, needed to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It needed to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It needed to be better than and that would have been striking to the hearers in that day because the scribes and Pharisees were those that were following the law to the nth degree. They were doing everything that was expected of them, or at least so it seemed to those of that, that day. And so for Jesus to say that would have been striking nonetheless. And then later on, as he gets to this phrase, to love your enemies, it would have been something that would have clashed with what they would have seen among the Pharisees. But then, not only in the context of the greater picture of the sermon, but also in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, I want us to think about where this particular phrase fits in. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, Jesus is saying a phrase over and over again. He says this, you have heard it said by those of old, and then he'll fill in that blank with whatever he's speaking about at that moment, and then he'll go on to say, but I say to you. In Matthew chapter five, verse number 43, Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's the scene in which Jesus is preaching this particular sermon to a people that were living in a day and age in which it was said to other people, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. And so that's where we come onto the scene as we are setting the scene of this particular series of verses in verses 43 through 48. But I also want us to think about the fact that Jesus taught this sermon to a people with a very divided religious culture. We already, already mentioned a little bit with regard to the Pharisees a moment ago, but think about John chapter four, verses 19 through 20, in which the Samaritan woman comes to Jesus at the well and she says to Jesus, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And she says, our fathers say that it is on this mountain that we should worship, but the Jews say that it is in Jerusalem. And so that just illustrates a little bit the religious division that was going on in that day and age between the Jews and the Samaritans not the least of which was their cultural distinctions from each other in which the Jews would have looked at the Samaritans as though they were half-breeds. But, but above, above that, they looked at each other differently in terms of their religious uh, operations and what they believed to be the case. But not only that, as we mentioned a moment ago, the Pharisees were binding heavy burdens and placing them upon men's shoulders, binding heavy burdens that were hard to bear, but they themselves, Matthew 23, verse four, would not so much as lift a finger to move them. And so there was this division between the Jews and the Samaritans. There was this division between even among the Jews, the Pharisees and the scribes and those that were not Pharisees and scribes. 
And that is not even to mention the division that would have existed between the Jews and what would have been termed as Gentiles in the world, those that were not Jews from a religious sense. And so you can start to see the division that is existing among people that Jesus is speaking to. But not only that, as you think about Jesus speaking this sermon to a people that were living in a divided secular culture. In a divided secular culture, you think about even before Jesus was born in Matthew chapter two, as many people in this day, uh, this month are thinking about the birth of Jesus. They maybe oftentimes think about Jesus in a manger, but they forget about what happens in Matthew chapter two and verse number 16, that Herod, having heard that the wise men having gone to look for Jesus, asked them to come back to him to tell him where Jesus is because he hears about this new king of the Jews and he wants to make sure that this king of the Jews is going to be thwarted to the point that in Matthew chapter two, verse 16, Herod commands that all the baby boys that are two years of age and under be murdered. Talk about a divided secular culture. The Roman empire trying to oppress the Jews because he didn't want a Jewish king to rise up and cause division among his ranks. But not only that, as you progress in the book of Matthew to chapter 27, verses 15 through 23, we find the Romans still on the scene in Jesus's life, this time at the end of his life, before he's crucified, in which Pilate delivers Jesus up to be crucified, divided secular culture, trying to keep the peace. But then even after Jesus's death, Jesus prophesied in Luke chapter 21, verse number six, that at some point that not one stone would be left standing upon another as he spoke about the temple or about Jerusalem, that ultimately that that Rome would come and destroy Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem. And so we're living, these people are living in a time in which it was a divided secular culture. Very much so, it was the case that people had enemies, not only religiously, but also secularly. But I also want to suggest to us this morning that Jesus also taught this sermon even to a divided 21st century culture. That is to say that these words from Matthew chapter five, verses 43 through 48, were not just spoken to some disciples of his that were following him around and happened to follow him up onto a mountain, but he's rather even speaking them to us today. And so let's spend some time studying the solution that Jesus lays out for us in verse 44 about how it is that we are to interact with and the relationships that we are to have with our enemies. First though, we need to ask the question, who is my enemy? Who is my enemy? You know, it's easy for us to think about maybe that terrorist or that evil person that, that uh, uh, is killing lots of people as, as your enemy. And that is certainly uh, reconcilable with this text. But notice there are at least three types of enemies that are found in Matthew chapter five, verse 43 through 48. Number one, notice that at least with regard to God, those who do evil are enemies of God. Notice verse 45. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So we have, of course, enemies that do evil that we look at them and we despise what they're doing and and they might even be doing evil to us and we recognize them as enemies because of that. But it's not the only type of enemy that we find in this text. We also see in verse 46 that an enemy might be considered those who do not love me. Those who do not love me. Notice verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? So the implication is 
that if Jesus is calling us to love our enemies, if we're only loving those who love us, those who don't love us would be considered by those that were listening to be enemies. And then on top of that, he also seems to indicate that there's another type of enemy. Those who don't necessarily see eye to eye with me. Notice verse 47. And if you greet your brethren only, what do you more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? And so progressively, it seems to get a little softer in terms of what we might think about as an enemy. Of course, those that do evil are enemies. And yeah, I'm pretty sure those that don't love me are enemies, but what about those people that don't see eye to eye with me? My brethren, maybe in a physical sense, my brother or sister, or in a spiritual sense, my brother and sister in Christ, those that don't see eye to eye with me, how am I to treat them? And how do I really look at them as my enemy? So John, was, I was talking to John about this sermon. He suggests, you know, sometimes as you think about who is your enemy, it's really just whoever it is that you're mad at in the moment. It's kind of who you can sum it up to be. Your enemy is someone that you're mad at, that you're frustrated with, someone that you're at odds with. And so as we talk this morning about studying the solution, about dealing with your enemy, don't just be thinking in your mind about that enemy that's across uh, the, the ocean somewhere that's a terrorist perhaps, or even in the, on domestic soil that's a terrorist, that you would perceive them to be your enemy, but rather those that are even close to you, that you're at odds with being your enemy. How do you interact with them? So let's spend some time studying the solution. Verse number 44, but I say to you, number one, Love your enemy. Love your enemies. It starts with the heart. It starts with the heart. Do you truly love your enemy? Do you see them as a soul, as having a soul? As has been said before, you will never look into the eyes of another human being that God does not love. They have a soul. And as you think about verse 44, to love your enemies in 1 Corinthians 13, verses four through eight, the love, the chapter of love, think about how many of these things would be said as what we might do in opposite to our enemy. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, it's not puffed up. Does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. How many of those things would be true in the opposite of how we treat our enemies? We are provoked by our enemies because we don't love them. We don't treat them, we treat them rudely because they are our enemies. We, we don't suffer long with them because they are our enemies. Instead of seeing them as another human being created in the image of God and loving them and having that agape love that is sometimes said to be unconditional love, the love with which God loves us, we instead justify the way we treat them because we, by saying that they are our enemies. So we need to recognize that it starts with the heart. It starts with the heart. But secondly, we need to tame our tongue. We need to tame our tongue. As we said a moment ago, if you're reading from the ESV, you won't find this particular phrase, bless those who curse you in Matthew chapter five, verse 44, but you will find it in Luke chapter six. And you'll see here that Jesus says, bless those who curse you. 
Now that word bless oftentimes is misunderstood because sometimes we think of the idea of a blessing being maybe somebody laying somebody's hands on, on someone else and just like, you know, I'm gonna bless this or bless that or, or sometimes we even say, I'm gonna bless the bread before we break it. And maybe sometimes people might think we mean that we're like performing some sort of magic trick. That's not what we mean. What we mean is that we are speaking well of what we are doing, what we are partaking of in those emblems. And the word bless literally just means to speak well of. In fact, the Psalms teach us to to sing, to, to, to pray, to bless the Lord. How do we bless the Lord? You think, well, isn't God the one giving the blessing? Well, when we think about the strict meaning of the word to bless, it just means to speak well of. And so to speak well of those who curse you. That's quite the opposite of what we're used to doing, isn't it? When someone curses you, you bristle up and you say something right back at them, don't you? You give it back to them. You unload on them. You curse them back. That's not what Jesus says. He says to speak well of them. What does that look like? It looks like looking at the individual and seeing their qualities and characteristics, their traits, the things that are honorable, commenting about those things, blessing them in that way, speaking well of them. Now, sometimes some of those enemies might be harder than others to find those things. But I would imagine it could be said of everyone that everyone has some sort of trait that is honorable, that we can bless, that we can say good things about. And do you not recognize as you think about James chapter three and verse number 10, that if we claim to be followers of Jesus, James says, out of your mouth proceeds both blessing and cursing, but these things ought not to be so. He goes on to talk about the fact that it's like as if, if you're, if you're speaking both blessing and cursing coming out of your mouth, it's like you are a spring that is giving forth both fresh and bitter water. You may be speaking well of your friends and your loved ones, but unless you are also speaking well of your enemies, what's coming forth out of your mouth is like that spring that is spewing forth nothing but a mixture of both good and bitter water. As you think about heaping coals of fire on her head, think about next the concept here in our text to employ hands to help. To employ hands to help. Jesus says in Luke chapter 6, verse 27, do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 21, the Proverbs writer says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him to drink, for in doing so you will heap burning coals of fire upon his head. What does that mean? There seems to be maybe uh, some cultural uh, you know, colloquialism that maybe we don't fully understand exactly what is meant by that, but the idea is this, that oftentimes your enemy maybe is really heated up about a certain situation, and when you do good to them, it oftentimes softens their heart. It oftentimes causes them to tone down their vitriol and their hatred because they see in you something that makes no sense to them, that you treated them fairly and good even when they had been treating you wrongly. So employ hands to help. But then consider finally, within our solution in this text, that Jesus calls us to call on the Creator. To call on the Creator He says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and finally, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. When was the last time that you prayed for your enemy? 
for the one that you are at odds with, the one that you're mad at, the one that you're having a spat with? When was the last time you prayed for them? You know, speaking blessings about them or doing good to them, they're not just platitudes and pat yourself on the back actions. Calling upon the creator is about hoping that they will come to their senses because you recognize the power of our creator to perhaps place something in their life that they might come to know him and become a follower of his. So what do I pray for on behalf of my enemy? Pray that their heart will be softened. Pray even that they might be defeated in their wrongdoing. Pray that they might come to know Jesus. Pray that they might come into a situation that another might teach them about the Lord and what he's done for them. Because you know what, after all, if we don't aspire in their lives, that they come to know Jesus, that they come to a knowledge of salvation, that they spend eternity in heaven with you and me someday, if we don't desire that, are we any better than our enemy? Are we any better than our enemy if we don't want them to also be saved? So call on the creator. And so as you think about that, pray for those who persecute you, verse 44, call to memory our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who upon the cross, as he looked down and saw his enemies and had just dealt with so much turmoil and, and torture because of the cross and because of the scourging, said these words, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. A picture of what it means to love your enemy. And so we have spent some time setting the scene. Now we've, we've spent some time studying the solution. The most important thing that we want to do this morning is spend some time seeing the Father. Seeing the Father any good Bible student is going to make sure to understand what is this text telling me about God? What does Jesus want me to know about God? And you'll see that there is a call in this particular text to be like the Father. To be like the Father. In verse 45, the first part of the verse, Jesus says that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who persecute you and spitefully use you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Because why are we striving to love our enemies? Is it just so that we can be the bigger man? No. It's so that we can be like our Father. So that we can be like our God. In verse 48, as it sandwiches this section here, verses 45 through 48, we find Jesus says, therefore, if you have done these things, having considered all what we just said, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, does that mean sinlessly perfect? No. Does that meaning mean come to a more complete picture of what it looks like to be like your Father? Yes. To have an image that is perfected, to be replicated of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, of God our Father. And so there's a call to be like our father. Why do we love our enemies? Not simply because we're trying to be the bigger man, but because we want to be like our father. Consider the character of the father. Notice verse 45, we already read, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He treats both equally. 
the evil and the good, the just and the unjust. He gives to those that need those blessings equally. Think about John chapter three, verse 16 though. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He loved the world. More specifically, turn with me in your Bibles as you consider this context or the concept of loving your enemy. Turn to Romans chapter five. Romans chapter five, verses seven through 11. Let's really begin verse number eight. Romans chapter five, verse number eight. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Jesus died for his enemies, for you and for me. And it is God our Father who sent the Son on our behalf to die for his enemies. And so when we read of Jesus calling us to be like the Father, what he's calling us to be like is to send even good things as, as the Father did on behalf of our enemies, those who we are, are at odds with, those who we're mad at, those who we maybe even hate, to love them, to be like the Father, see the Father in this text, because there is a contrast to the Father here. We see that in verses 46 and 47, back in Matthew chapter number five, that Jesus says, what, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? In other words, what credit is it to you to be like your father if you just love those who love you? Are you any more like your father if you only love those who love you? Are you any more like your father if you only greet your brethren? For even your enemy greets his brethren. Even your enemy greets those who he gets along with that are close to him. What credit is it to you to be like your father? To, to actually be someone who could be said to represent, whose image could look like the Father in heaven if we only love those who love us. So see the Father this morning and be like him. Love your enemies. This morning as we close, we, we close where we began, in the courtroom. In September of 2018, police officer Amber Geiger walked into what she believed was her home and murdered Botham John, who was in his own home. Turns out after a long shift, at least the story goes, that she walked into what she believed to be her apartment, whose her apartment was directly, I believe, either above or beneath his, thinking it was hers, but it was actually his and thought it was a burglar in her, ho in her home and shot him dead. A year later, she was convicted of murder and sentenced to 10 years in prison. And it was at the victim impact statements that the younger brother of Botham, Brant Jean, made an unforgettable statement. 
as he sat there in the room with the woman who had killed his brother, he said these words, I forgive you. I love you. I don't wish anything bad to happen to you. I only wish that you will come to know Jesus Christ and have him as your savior. And then what could have never been expected, he then turned to the judge and asked, I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug? And so he stepped down from his seat and began walking to Amber Geiger, who had killed his brother, remember. And they embraced for a long period of time. I know there was a great deal, and still is a great deal of controversy surrounding those circumstances. But in that moment, you saw a picture of the father, a man who loved what would have been understood to have been his enemy, who forgave her, who loved her, who wished nothing bad upon her. He was in effect blessing her and doing good to her and employing hands to help, literally to hug her. And I have no doubt that he called upon his creator on her behalf, that maybe she might come to know Jesus and make him her Lord because he recognized that that's really the most important thing in this life. As we conclude this month of our Evangelism in Sync program, we have talked about a variety of areas and manners in which we can influence those that are lost. We've talked about the fact that our neighbors are some of the most ripe individuals, if you will, for having an opportunity to plant a seed in their life. But don't also forget the impact that loving your enemy can have on others as they see how you treat others who are at odds with you. As I began to scroll the YouTube comments of going back and watching the video of Brant Jean and what he said to Amber Geiger, Comment after comment after comment said this, I'm really beginning to reevaluate my life, how I'm treating other people, my relationship with God. Don't forget the impact that loving your enemy has on those that are lost. This morning, perhaps you are struggling with the concept, the idea of loving your enemies. Perhaps it's really hard for you and you want help with that. I guarantee you that there are others here that are struggling with that as well. And we all want to encourage each other and build each other up to help one another in this endeavor. But if you want to repent of that sin, now's the time to do so. We extend this invitation as an opportunity for you to come and to walk the aisle, not to be shamed, but for us to know that you're hurting and in need of help. For you and I to be able to help each other, to dwell with one another, to bear each other's burdens, Galatians chapter six and verse number two. And we can't do that unless you actually communicate that to us. Perhaps you're not a Christian. And the concepts, the teachings of Jesus to love your enemies have been impactful to you and and you recognize that this man, Jesus, is far and away the greatest teacher to have ever lived and you want to give your life to him, there's no better time than right now as together we stand and as we sing. I believe that was our bell. Good to see you this morning. Oh, there's our bell. I was hearing things. It's good to have a good amount of rain last night. Good to be under shelter from the, from the weather, for all the many blessings that we have. Let's go to our God in prayer this morning before we begin our class. 
Our Father God in heaven, we're so thankful for this day. We're thankful for the many blessings that you give us, God. We're thankful for your son, Jesus, for you as our Father, for the Spirit, for the work that he has done. And God, we pray that we always recognize the blessings that are found in you. As we study the walk that we have as a Christian and we strive to have a closer walk with you, God, may we recognize that you never depart. Uh, You never leave us nor forsake us. It is whenever that we are drifting from you, uh, it is of our own accord, it's of our own doing. God, we are making it our aim this quarter to find ways to ensure that we draw near to you, that we purify ourselves and become holy. And God, we recognize that you are holy, God, that you are uh, marvelous and wonderful above unrighteousness, that you have nothing to do with wickedness. And God, we recognize that we as your people, as we strive to, to come close to you, uh, that, that we must be individuals that strive and attempt to be as holy as we can. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, last week we began a new quarter of study entitled Closer Walk with God. And so we said that it's serving as kind of a follow-up to our previous quarter, which was Keys to New Testament Christianity. And so not only is it going to be helpful for new Christians, new converts, uh, people that uh, have just put on Christ in baptism to learn how to continue to grow in their walk with God, but it's also for all of us as seasoned Christians, as we might call ourselves, those that have been Christians for a number of years, to reorient ourselves, to remind ourselves what it means to truly walk close to God and to reevaluate where our life is, to ask ourselves, are we drifting from him, as we mentioned in the prayer? Because God is never going to leave us, he's never going to forsake us, that whenever it is that we find ourselves maybe feeling like God is not as close as he used to be to us, it's not of his accord, it's of our own accord. And so we're striving to reorient ourselves, all of us as Christians, to to hopefully be better people, uh, but ultimately to have a stronger relationship with our Lord and Savior. And so just by way of review, last week, we'll run through these really quickly. We said that each of us has been called to a walk, Ephesians 4 verse 1, that we are to walk worthy of the calling by which we have been called. And so that there's this expectation, we're going to talk more about that later. We talked about the fact that it's at baptism that we begin to walk in newness of life. It's not before baptism, but it is at the moment in which we have our sins washed away in the water or grave of baptism that our our walk truly begins. And we're walking now in newness of life. We're a new creation. Our walk is in Christ Jesus, that it is that Christ is who is our Lord, but ultimately we are patterning ourselves after him as we'll talk about more in a second. Our walk, as we said, is in the footsteps of Jesus. We are literally trying to pattern our lives after the way that he lived. And so our walk is not a walk that we can just live and do it however we want, but rather it's according to, it's expected to be according to Jesus. Our walk is by faith. Sometimes our walk requires that we step out in faith a little bit and do things that maybe uh, may not always make sense to us or, or maybe that we don't understand or maybe we've never seen come to fruition, such as the resurrection that we can trust in ultimately that, that we will one day be raised to be with our Father for an eternity. And so our walk is by faith in many cases. 
Our walk is in love. It's not according to uh, envy or evil or deceit or anything of that nature, but rather that everything that we are doing in our walk is, is to be by love and in love. It's according to the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. The Spirit certainly leads us according to what is revealed in His Word, and we also have the Spirit dwelling within us, however uh, it is that you understand that to be as you, as you read Scripture Exactly how that is the case, I don't know, and it's okay to say that, but it's, but it's certainly the case that our walk is according to the Spirit. It's instructed by the apostles as he inspired, the Spirit inspired the apostles. It's not just that our walk is instructed and informed by Jesus, the red letter words of the New Testament, but it's also instructed by his holy apostles who were entrusted with writing down and pinning down, among others, what it was that Jesus and the Holy Spirit, our Father, wanted him to record and them to record for us. And so the things that they wrote down are instructing our walk as well. The things that we find in our epistle and in uh, the letters to the various churches uh, and to various individuals, that these are instructive to us and help us in our walk. It's not by the flesh. We said that this is perhaps the one thing that maybe is the, the cause for us to feel like we've drifted from God is because we start to to give in to the desires of the flesh and we start to walk by the flesh instead of by the spirit. So we need to evaluate that in our lives. Are we walking by the flesh? And we also want to recognize that our walk serves as examples to others. And in turn, we also want to notice that looking at others' walks help us in our walk as we strive to pattern ourselves after them. Thinking about 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse number one, when Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And ultimately, we need to recognize that as we talk about this walk, you know, we said, sometimes we say, how, we ask somebody, how's your walk going? We're asking them, how is your Christian life going? How, how is your relationship with God? We need to recognize that ultimately our walk is connected to our ultimate salvation. It's not that we could ever reach sinless perfection and that we could ever do enough to earn our salvation, but the fact remains nevertheless that how we walk is connected to our righteousness and is connected to how we uh, relate ourselves to Jesus and whether or not Jesus will claim us as one of his own, if you will, because we are striving to be his. And so this is what we mean by walk as we enter into this quarter. And we talked about walking as a disciple of Christ. We said that a disciple literally means a learner or one who follows another's teaching. And that it could be someone who is an, an adherent or an imitator. And so as we think about discipleship of Christ, Christ says that a disciple will be like his teacher. A disciple is not above his teacher, but one who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. And so that's what we're striving to be, is be like Christ as we walk as a disciple of his. And so corrected that on the screen from last week. It should have said Genesis 1, 26 and 27. We are made in the Lord's image. And as sin has entered into our lives, it has caused us to be deformed, if you want to use it, that term, to no longer look like our God, if, if you will. But ultimately, that as we think about Romans chapter 8, verse 29, that we are to be conformed to the image of his dear son. That's what we're striving to be. And so that's what it means to walk as a disciple. And so this is where we left off last week. How can I tell if I'm walking with God? And that's, that's a big question for us, you know, as we think about, it's one thing to notice the pattern of scripture that this is how you become a disciple, that you follow these particular expectations from God, that you obey his word, that you walk in obedient faith, that you confess him, you repent of your sins, that you are immersed in a watery grave of baptism and you walk in newness of life, Romans 6 verse 4, you become a disciple of his. But how do I know 
if I'm continuing to walk as a disciple of his. And it could be said, first and foremost, that a disciple abides in Jesus's words. John 8, verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And so the word, as we have it revealed to us, is not just some uh, story book. It's not just a love letter, as some people assert that it is. It certainly is that, a love letter that, that we have from God revealed to us about what he has done on our behalf. But there is very much an element to Scripture that is an expectation for us to abide in the words of Jesus, to, to follow after what he has said to do. And so it's more than just a love letter. It's also a testament. It is a covenant that he has made with us so that we can have and maintain a right relationship with him. And so how can I tell if I'm walking with God? A disciple abides in Jesus's words, but also John 13 verses 34 and 35, a disciple loves the brethren. <clears throat> a disciple loves the brethren. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And then verse 35, he says this, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. What does he say? If you have love for one another. How do we know if we are a disciple of Christ, if we are walking as a disciple of Christ. Number one, we abide in his words, but secondly, there's also an understanding that when we are demonstrating love to our brothers, our, our brethren in Christ, that we are revealing to the world that we are his disciples. And so what's the inverse of that? If we're not revealing love and not showing and demonstrating love to our brethren, it could not be said of us that we are truly walking as a disciple of the Lord. And so we need to evaluate that in our own lives. Am I someone who is constantly in strife with my brethren, with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I someone who is constantly at odds, someone who's, who's backbiting and, and causing division among other people? If that's the case, it could be said very much so that you're not walking as a disciple of God because a disciple loves the brethren. But also, John chapter 15, verse 8, a disciple bears much fruit. A disciple bears much fruit. You know, it could be said of someone that they are abiding in Jesus' words to a certain degree, but they're not actually bearing fruit. By that I mean that they could be following every commandment to the nth degree, as was the case in some regards to the Pharisees. They were doing everything that they could find in the Old Testament law to dot every I and cross every T to make sure that every jot and tittle as it was in, uh, as it's found in the New Testament in the, in the Greek language. You think about those, those characters and making sure that every single one of those things were covered to the nth degree, but were they bearing fruit, those Pharisees? Were they bearing good fruit? They're bearing fruit. We're all bearing fruit one way or another whether it's good fruit or bad fruit, but were they bearing good fruit? No, they were causing strife. We're gonna talk in our sermon this morning about how, how the Pharisees were causing, uh, they, were, they were inflicting burdens that were hard to bear. They were laying them upon men's shoulders, but they themselves would not even lift their finger to move one of them. 
And so as you think about those situations, asking yourself, am I, am I just following the commandments of God just because I like to follow a checklist? Or am I actually bearing fruit in my life? And we're going to talk more about that this quarter and go into more detail about bearing much fruit and what that looks like. And, and ultimately thinking about the fruit of the Spirit as we'll even talk more a little bit about this morning. But when we look at our lives, can we see the fruit of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus in our lives and in our relationships with others. So how can I tell if I'm walking with God? Kind of a 10,000 foot view. So much more that we could be, be saying about that we will in the coming quarter. But just kind of three key points. A disciple abides in Jesus' words, loves the brethren, and bears much fruit. As we continue to examine our walk and think about the walk that we have, I want us to ask the question, do I realize what it costs to walk with God? As we've said, walking with God, as we'll we'll continue to talk about more this morning, comes with many blessings, many benefits, so many reasons why we would desire to walk with God. But we also need to recognize that walking with God is not without its costs. My walk with Jesus must be my top priority. It cannot just be a facet of my life. If you look at a pie chart, sometimes people say, well, here's a slice of of my life for work, and here's a slice of my life for my family. Here's a slice of my life for Jesus. That's not how it works. Jesus is that which completely undergirds my entire life. He's the foundation of that pie chart. Everything about my relationship with Jesus informs how I interact with my neighbors, how I interact with my coworkers, how I interact with my family. And so my, my walk with Jesus must be my top priority. And so that's gonna require that some of the choices that I want to make in my life, things that are maybe of the flesh, are going to be things that I have to to, to put away, to decide not to engage in and, and to be involve myself in because, as we said, Jesus isn't just part of my life, but rather he is informing every decision in my life and in every facet of my life. And so therefore, as my top priority, as you think about Luke 14, verse 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus did not mince words. He was clear and plain. He does not mean, by the way, that you must hate your mother in the sense that you may no longer love her her, or like her or uh, that, that you can have no relationship with her. What he means is Jesus must be my top priority, that in comparison to how I see my mother and my brothers and my sisters and and how I relate to them, Jesus is so far superior and supreme to that type of relationship that the world will look at it almost like I hate them to that degree because, because I love Jesus so much more. To be his disciple means he must be my top priority, not my only priority in the sense that, that I don't also think about and honor my parents, but my top priority, that which informs everything, every choice I make in my life. My walk with Jesus may mean suffering. It may mean suffering. Luke 14, verse 27, he goes on to say, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. I suppose 
that when Jesus said these words to the disciples in Luke chapter 14, that they did not fully understand what Jesus meant by that. No doubt they would have understood what a cross was as they looked at the Romans and what they did to criminals. But they did not fully understand that Jesus would be nailed to a cross and that he would be literally carrying his cross to the hill of Golgotha. And so as he said to them these words later on, I wonder if they would have reflected upon what Jesus said after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, after his ascension, and they began to receive persecution. Very, from the very beginning, Acts chapter two is the inception of the church. Acts chapter three and four, we start to see persecution. Persecution right off the bat, suffering, heartache, difficulty, struggle. And I wonder if they started to think back to what Jesus had said, if you do not take up your cross and bear your own cross and come after me, you cannot be my disciple. We need to ask ourselves that question. Am I willing to, to uh, accept the cost that comes with being a disciple of Christ? It's worth it, 100%, 1,000%, a million percent, but it is not without its costs. And so my, my walk with Jesus may mean forsaking others, Continuing in Luke chapter 14, in that, in that context, verse 33, so therefore anyone who, of you who does not renounce all that he, has not, that he has cannot be my disciple. Anyone that does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So it may mean forsaking physical possessions. It may mean forsaking an occupation that you have because it's not consistent with being a disciple of Jesus. It may mean forsaking relationships with others because that means that you have decided uh, to put Jesus as the top priority in your life. And so, do I realize what it costs to walk with God? And all of this is serving to help us here in a minute as we talk about the matchless rewards that come with following Jesus because if we start to recognize what it costs, it's kind of this you know, compare and contrast situation. Yes, it's gonna cost some of these things, but when we compare it to the gain, to the reward that comes with what's associated with being a disciple, a walker, a follower after Jesus, could it really even compare? But we still need to evaluate it. We still need to make sure that we recognize it because if we don't, down the road, as we get into our walk, maybe this is the case in your life right now. Maybe the reason why you're not walking close with God today is because 15 years ago, you didn't truly assess what it was, the cost to walk with God. And so you've started to realize as time has gone on, all that you've had to sacrifice and all that is required of you, and maybe you're not willing today to continue doing that. And so you've begun to drift. You've begun to be more like the world because you didn't first assess what it costs to walk with God. So it's important for us to reevaluate and to reassess that. But on the flip side, from a 10,000 foot view, do I recognize the matchless rewards that come with walking with God? Two parts to this particular slide. Number one, recognizing that a faithful walk means promise of future blessings. Of future blessings. Romans chapter five, verse nine, Paul says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. is appointed for man once to die. 
and then the judgment, Paul says later on in this book. But as you think about the concept, the idea of, of being an individual that stands before God in judgment and, and having to give an account, a record, for all that it is that you have done in your life, do you recognize the fearful thing that it would be to stand before God and not be covered by the blood and the grace and mercy of Jesus? So many times we look at the God of the Old Testament, as we said last week, and say sometimes, well, the God of the Old Testament was a God of vengeance and, and punishment and wrath. But the God of the New Testament, he's a God of love and mercy and grace. And, and to, to pit God in the Old Testament versus God in the New Testament is a false dichotomy because it's the same God. God never changes. But it's also to negate the fact that it is the God of the Old Testament that in his love and mercy prepared the way to bring about the Christ in the New Testament for us. But ultimately that we, when we say things like, well, God's a God of love and mercy and he will never punish others, is to ignore the warnings that Jesus himself, the God, God in the flesh, said about the coming judgment. Matthew chapter 25, the sheep will be separated from the goats. And to stand before God is a fearful thing. He's going to come, Jesus is, taking vengeance on those who do not know him. But if we are walking with God, it means promise of the future blessing of having been saved from that wrath. Having been saved from that wrath. What a blessing. But it's not just the future blessings. It's also the current present blessings. As you think about a faithful walk with God, meaning a promise of present blessing, we said a moment ago that it's a, a, a promise of present suffering, present difficulty. That's true, but it's also a promise of present blessing. You think about John chapter 14, verse 27. Jesus says, peace I leave with you. Peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you, but let, your hearts, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Yes, there's going to be turmoil in your life because of following Jesus, but more than that, there's going to be peace. Seems like a paradox. Seems like it doesn't add up, but when you look at the physical versus the spiritual, yes, there's going to be turmoil physically for you, but spiritually, there's peace. There's hope, there's confidence in knowing that down the road in eternity, how I'm living my life now matters. It has consequence. And so when I'm walking with God as I should, it means ultimately that I have peace with God. John chapter 15, verse nine, as the father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And then verse number 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. And not just that my joy may be in you, but he goes on to say that your joy may be full. You think about Ecclesiastes as Solomon wrote that book. He said, I, I sought after pleasure I sought after contentment and pleasure and in possessions and in prestige. And I, and I found that none of those things could bring about contentment. 
None of those things can bring about joy and peace and happiness. But as you think about what Jesus is saying here, if you abide in my love, if you keep my commandments, not only will my joy be in you, but your joy will be full. The idea is it, it's coming to the brim and, and overflowing. So many people in the world today look at the things of the flesh and they want those things of the flesh and they desire after those things of the flesh and they seek contentment and joy in those things and they never find them. And I recognize that there are mental illnesses that cause people to commit suicide and things that, that may be outside of their control, but there are some individuals beyond that who seek contentment and peace and happiness and joy and they have all the possessions and all the things and all the fame and fortune that they could ever desire and yet they still are left at the end of their life desiring to take their own life because they don't truly have peace and joy and contentment and it's found nowhere else but in Jesus Christ. And a faithful walk means promise of having a joyful life. Not without sorrow, not without heartache, not without suffering, not without cost, but a full of joy life. Mark chapter 10, verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, now notice, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. It's true, isn't it? You think about when you become a Christian, we're going to talk more about this blessing here in a minute. If we get to it, we'll talk, if we don't get to it, we'll talk about it next week. But have you ever thought about the hundredfold nature of the blessing of being part of the family of God? Yes, you might be forsaking your physical mother and your physical brother and your physical sister, but a hundredfold in the family of God, you're gaining brothers and sisters, mothers in the faith, fathers in the faith, even as he said, houses, as you travel, as you spend time in foreign lands and mission work, people opening their homes to you. Maybe you don't have a house there that you own that you presently occupy, but you have a place to lay your head. It's all a house is really for, to, sh to shield us and to shelter us from, from the elements. As you think about that, there are matchless rewards, not only the promise of future blessings, but also the promise of present blessings. And so let's appreciate our walk some more as we continue thinking about that. That was our 10,000 foot view. Let's narrow in a little bit more as we think about the Godhead and the blessing that it is to have a relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Number one, we are blessed with God as our Heavenly Father. As our Heavenly Father. Think about the fact that He is the source of every good and perfect gift. You know, the more you value something, the more you're going to take care of it. It's not, isn't that the truth? You're not going to let that, that uh, heirloom from your grandmother, your grandfather, sit out in the rain last night. And if, if you did, if that happened on accident, it would tear you up, would it not? How much more is it for us as we appreciate the relationship that we have with our Father and stop to think the relationship we have with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, with our church family, that the more that you value your walk with God and see its values and blessings and benefits, that the more effort 
you're going to put into maintaining its condition, the more care you're going to give it, the more attention you're going to make sure that it has because you truly value it. If you ever stop to think about what is going to seem perhaps on the screen like some very simple things, some very obvious and straightforward things, but if you never stop to think about just how good it is that we have it, will it not be the case that you won't give it the attention that it's due and you're going to let it decay and rot, rest away? Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And so as you think about being blessed with God as our heavenly Father, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Matthew 7 verse number 11 If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts or good things to those who ask him? God's going to take care of us. Everything, every good and every perfect gift, that is, everything that we really need, God is going to provide for us. Matthew chapter 5, and you think about the Sermon on the Mount, and into chapter number 6, particularly, as Jesus talks about the sparrow of the air and the lily of the field, Are you not much more valuable than they that the Lord is going to take care of you? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God's going to take care of you with everything that you need. Appreciate that. Recognize that. Value that. And that's going to help you in your closer walk with God. He also provides comfort. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So many in the world are dealing with tragedies, heartaches, and difficulties without their Father God. Could you imagine going through this life dealing with the heartaches of a loss of a loved one, dealing with the heartaches of a loss of a child or a spouse, dealing with the heartaches of of seeing evil happen in the world without having the comfort of God. Read the Psalms. Hear the comfort that they found in their Lord, their strength, their refuge, their, their rock, their shelter, their fortress, all the words that they used to describe their God. Do you look at God that way? He's the God of all comfort. He should be providing that for you if you'll just but let him. He also provides us some correction when we need it. A loving father will correct his children, will he not? A father who does not correct his children is not loving to them because as they have been given to God, given to them by God, Parents are to instruct and correct and admonish and to help a child to grow. So it is with our God, our Father. When the Hebrews writer said, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines or chastens, depending on your translation, the one whom he loves. Sometimes the correction 
that we receive from our father, our earthly father, may sting a little bit. It might hurt a little bit. And so it may be the case sometimes when we find ourselves being corrected by God's word that it stings and it hurts a little bit. But is it not for our good? Is it not a blessing that he has corrected us with his word when we open it and, and, and the truths of it are revealed to us? It's a blessing. And we ought not to look at it as something that is, is a negative thing, but rather a good thing, an awesome thing, a, a worthwhile thing that we have at our disposal. And ultimately, as we mentioned in our prayer earlier this morning, he is always reliable. Again, the Hebrews writer, verse, chapter 13, verses 5 and 6 says, Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear, for what can man do to me? What can man do to me? The Lord is reliable. He's always near. He is our heavenly father. Appreciate that. And it will be to you the, your credit to help you in your walk with him. Value the fact that he gives you every good and perfect gift. Value the fact that he provides comfort. Value the fact that he corrects us when it's needed. Value the fact that he is always reliable. And I promise it will help in your relationship with God. Also recognize that we are blessed with Jesus as Lord and High Priest. We are blessed with Jesus as Lord and High Priest. Consider the fact that he rules over all kings and authorities. He rules over all kings and authorities. Revelation chapter one, verses five and six, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. He is the ruler of kings on earth. We worry so much about who the kings on earth are, don't we? No, we don't live under a monarchy here in this nation, but there are lots of kings, lots of kings that are elected that we put so much stock in and so much worry in our lives surrounding those individuals. And we forget, we neglect to remember that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. Man, we are blessed with Jesus as our Lord, as our king, as our high priest. Matthew 28, verse 18, Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Not just in heaven, but on earth, all authority, Jesus has it. 1 Peter 3, verse 22, he, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Angels, authorities, and powers are subjected to Christ. Well, you say, well, why isn't Jesus working those things out? Why, is, why isn't he seeing the things that are going on in the world around us and put those things to an end? Sometimes we may not understand exactly all the things that are going on behind the scenes, but we have books like the book of Habakkuk revealed to us. When Habakkuk cried out to his God, God, why are you not preventing the people, the evil people of the land from doing the things that they are doing? And he says, don't worry, I'm taking care of it. You know what he says? I'm sending the Chaldeans 
the Babylonians. And Habakkuk says, what? The, ba- the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, they're worse than the people that are here. How is that going to make it any better? That's when he says, the Lord says to Habakkuk, the just shall live by faith. That is, we walk by faith, we live by faith, we trust that God is going to work out in the end what really matters, what is good, what's right and just. And so as you think about Jesus ruling over all kings and authorities, and we may not understand all that's going on in the world right now, why is he allowing, why is he uh, uh, okay with what's happening so it might seem? But in the end, we know that God is working together all things for good to those that love him. Not saying that he's, that he's using people to, to, to do evil things necessarily, but that in every situation, God can work out good, that God can bring about what's, what's necessary. And so we need to recognize and be confident in that Jesus is our king, that he rules, and that he intercedes on our behalf. Romans chapter eight, verse number 34 who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. The picture of this idea of intercession is that we have the devil, as he is called the accuser, standing before us or standing next to us or across the, the aisle from us, if you will, and accusing us in a courtroom setting. And saying, he doesn't belong to you, God. He is, he's evil. He has sin on his record. He has sin on his account. But standing next to us on the other side of that aisle is Jesus. And he's standing before the judge, the God of heaven. And Jesus is saying, he's on my team. I've got him. He belongs to me. He is righteous because of what I have done, Jesus would say. Not because of the works that he has done, but that Jesus makes up that gap. He makes up that difference. He helps us to become righteousness. And so it is the case that Jesus intercedes on our behalf. Therefore, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. The word propitiation is this idea of appeasing the wrath of God. To, to have in a situation that the God of heaven, as he looks down and sees wrath and, and sin and evil doing, that his wrath needs to be placated because he is a just judge, a righteous judge. And that as you think about Jesus coming and offering himself as a sacrifice, that word propitiation is the same idea as is found in the Old Testament for the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant where this blood was sprinkled. And it was at that place that the, the sins of the people were forgiven. That's where the people, the high priest, came and met God and, and had the, the forgiveness or at least the covering of sins at that point for the people of Israel. Jesus is that propitiation. He is that appeasing of the wrath of God. He intercedes on our behalf. He took our place. And I'll point you to chapter 7, verse 24 and 25 to maybe write in your notes and to, to consider later but he is one that we are to draw near to because he holds his priesthood permanently. It wasn't from generation to generation passed on from one priest to the next, but Jesus is that perfect high priest, one that lasts forever, that we can rely on. 
And so we're blessed with God as our heavenly father. We're blessed with Jesus as Lord and high priest. And we are blessed with the spirit who dwells in us. We're blessed with the spirit who dwells in us. We need to recognize that he gives us strength. Romans chapter eight, verses 11 through 13. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, on Wednesday night, we talked about this in our, in our Think on These Things class over in the education building. How does the Spirit dwell in us? The answer could be given very simply. Exactly how? We don't know. There are, there are a variety of, of theories ideas that he does this, various manners or or ways in which he does this. The fact of the matter remains that he does, and that's a blessing, something we need to accept and recognize. Perhaps it's through the word only, that as as the word comes inside of us, that as we consume it, that the spirit dwells in us more and more in that sense. Regardless of how it is that you view it, the Spirit does dwell in us and somehow he gives us strength. Not miraculously, not just, there's no way that he leads us to do things that are outside of our will, to do things beyond what we desire to do, that he changes us outside of our own, uh, our own desires, but rather that he does dwell in us and he gives us strength. As you think about Ephesians chapter 3, Verse number 16, that he would grant you according to the riches of of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, verse 20, according to the power that works in us. He also helps us in our weakness to pray. He helps us in our weakness to pray. Sometimes we go to God and we don't really know what it is that we what's on our heart, what it is that we want and desire to pray. But notice what Romans chapter eight, verses 26 and 27 say. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weakness. How? Again, I don't know, but he does. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. What a blessing to consider. Sometimes we are so distraught. Sometimes we are in such heartache. Sometimes we are in such turmoil. Sometimes our minds are so twisted up that we know that we should pray, but we just don't know how or what to say. As a Christian, with the spirit dwelling in us, The Spirit makes intercession for us. The Spirit asks the Father. The Spirit pleads on behalf of us to the Father the things that he knows that we need, the things that he knows that are on our heart. And in doing so, we have a blessing awarded to us. In the remaining moments we have, let's consider the blessing of the church as our family. Next week, we're going to talk about the fact that, as we said a moment ago, 
when we recognize the blessing of something, when we recognize the value of something, when something is important to us, like a family heirloom, we're going to treat it differently. We're going to take care of it. We're going to make sure that it is tended to. And so we've talked about the blessing of the Father, the blessing of Jesus, the blessing of the Holy Spirit, and now the blessing of a church family. And next week, as we continue, we're going to talk about how we honor those blessings. How do we make sure that we are walking in a way that is worthy, as we said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, of the blessings that come with the walk that we're walking? And so as we conclude, recognize we're blessed with the church as our family. As we said a moment ago, we're given hundredfold brothers and mothers and fathers and sisters. First Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, a family that the world does not have, that the world could not ever imagine do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2. Recognize, young men, that you have fathers in the faith. Recognize, young ladies, older women are as mothers and younger women as sisters and with all purity that we ought to appreciate the relationship that you have together. And finally, on this, on this slide, they are to become our closest relationships. Mark chapter 10, verses 28 and 30. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. That we are to recognize that the, the relationships that are most meaningful to us on this earth are the relationships that we have in Christ Jesus. So next week we'll talk about honoring those blessings. Thank you for your attention this morning.